Last week, I started out by talking about how sometimes people might be misrepresenting our current president. Lest you think that's a phenomenon limited to a particular political party, I'd like to ask you to remember back with me to back when George W. Bush was president. I remember at that time seeing short clips posted in social media and on TV often of him saying something off the cuff or perhaps getting tongue-tied trying to say something and uh, the impression meant to be that people meant to convey by that was to suggest that somehow he was uh, unrefined or some kind of a country bumpkin or perhaps not terribly intelligent. I checked. Uh, Did you know that George W. Bush has a BA from Yale? that he has an MBA from Harvard. Last I checked, those aren't easy places to get degrees from. Did you know he's the only president to have earned an MBA? Maybe he's not as uneducated as some might suggest. But I'll be honest, I, I don't really know George W. Bush. I have never met him. And uh, I, all I can say about him is based on second-hand information at best, sometimes third- and fourth-hand information. I really can't say that I know him. Neither do most people. That doesn't keep people from seeming to feel free to form very strongly held uh, opinions about him. I say all of this to ask you, have you ever considered that we do the same thing with God? Seems like everybody has some kind of an opinion about him, even people who know nothing about him, people who have never met him. I think that's the point uh, Jesus is trying to address in today's passage. I've titled today's message, You Don't Know Me. We're in John chapter 7, verses 25 through 36. Let's read verses 25 and 26. So some of the Jerusalemites were saying, Isn't this the one they are seeking to kill? Look, here he is speaking freely, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the rulers truly know that this is the Christ? Uh, There's something a little bit... uh, almost slightly humorous about this because we've just read in the previous verses where Jesus says, why do you want to kill me? And the response of the crowd is, you have a demon, who's trying to kill you? And then just a couple of verses later, we have the Jerusalemites hearing Jesus talk freely in the temple and they're saying, wait a minute, isn't this the guy they were trying to kill? Clearly this denial that there was no plot to kill Jesus was uh, an absolute lie, Uh, clearly. And perhaps, you know, there are people there for uh, the Feast of Booths that have come from all over the world to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So perhaps some of the people that have come from far-flung places aren't aware that in Jerusalem the religious leadership is very deliberately trying to get Jesus killed. Maybe they don't know, but certainly the Jerusalemites, John tells us, they're fully aware that the religious leaders in Jerusalem are trying to get Jesus killed. And this is their question. Isn't this the guy they wanted to kill? And when Jesus was gone, I mean, he had been there a few months back and had healed this uh, man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, healed him there in Jerusalem on the Sabbath and told him to take his cot and go home. And uh, ever since then, they've been uh, uh, 
trying to not only discredit Jesus, but actively plotting to kill him because in the conversation that followed all of that, he not only refused to uh, ask forgiveness for healing somebody on the Sabbath, but he affirmed that he was working because the Father continues to work. He was talking about God the Father. And if God the Father works, I work. And in fact, uh, he goes on to uh, basically equate himself with the Father. So they want to kill him not just because he's breaking Sabbath, but because he makes himself equal to God. So the Jerusalemites say, what? Why aren't they arresting him? Why? They're letting him talk publicly and freely right here out in the open in the, in the temple courts. I mean, there couldn't be a more public arena in Jewish life for somebody to be speaking. Why in the world are they not arresting him? They've been talking a big talk while Jesus was gone. They've had a lot of negative things to say about him when he wasn't there, but all of a sudden they seem silent on the topic. And they say, I wonder what that means. They're looking at their leaders and trying to interpret their actions and uh, interpret Jesus in light of the actions of their leaders. Could it be that the rulers truly know that this is the Christ? Maybe the reason they're not arresting him is that they've heard his words and clearly this man is speaking with an authority we have never heard anybody speak with before. Maybe he's won them over. Maybe they now have changed their mind and now they believe he is the Christ. This thing that everybody's been whispering about him since he showed up. Let's read the next verse, verse 27. But we know where this one is from, talking about Jesus. However, whenever the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. So they've been trying to interpret Jesus in light of what their leaders think about him. Now they're looking at scripture and saying, okay, well... My understanding was that nobody's supposed to know where the Christ comes from, where the Messiah comes from. Now that's, I have actually, there, there were some rabbis that said that, but that was not a universally held opinion in the first century. In fact, if we look in Matthew chapter 2, when uh, Herod wants to know where the Messiah is going to be born, he calls together the religious experts and they tell him from prophecy in, in, Old, in the Old Testament where the Messiah was supposed to be born, in Bethlehem of Judea. And uh, so clearly this isn't a universally held idea that the, whenever the Messiah shows up, nobody's going to have any idea where he comes from. But uh, it seems to have been something at least some of them thought. So they're looking at Jesus. Well, he can't be the Christ because we know where he's from. He's from Galilee. And we're not supposed to know where he's from. Now, John in his gospel doesn't bother to clear this up for his readers. Now, we know if we read the other gospels, we know that Jesus was actually, in fact, not from Galilee. He was born in Bethlehem of Judea, fulfilling the prophecies that talked about specifically where the Messiah was to be born. And this teaching that nobody's going to know where the Messiah is coming from, that teaching is really in contradiction of Scripture. John doesn't bother to clear that up for everybody. Which tells me that either he's, a, I, I, there are a couple of things I think I read into that. Either he's assuming that his readers are familiar with the other Gospels, which have already probably been written by the time he writes his Gospel, and he doesn't need to clear up what's common information, common knowledge. Uh, or 
and, and maybe it's both of these things. I, I think also John realizes that this kind of nitpicking over this or that prophecy in Scripture is not the right way to understand who Jesus is. This isn't about math. This isn't some kind of a mathematical formula that you're going to work through all these things and come out with the appropriate solution. Jesus is God breaking into our world and our creation. And we have to look on him and understand him as who he is revealing himself to be in Jesus. Not just based on secondary information. We actually have to come face to face with him to figure out who he is. And I think that's why John just kind of blows past these things without bothering to provide uh, some kind of argumentation to clear up the objection. Notice how Jesus addresses what they're getting wrong. Verse 28. <clears throat> so Jesus also cried out in the temple teaching and saying, you know me and you know where I come from. I have not come from myself, rather the one who sent me is true. You do not know him. I kind of think, I'm, I'm, I've debated this when I was making my translation here, whether I should have translated that as a question. You know me and you know where I'm coming from? Because they assume he's from Galilee. They're wrong on that count. He's not from Galilee, he was born in Bethlehem of Judea. So when Jesus says this, uh, I, I think at best it has to be ironic. You think you know me. You think you know where I come from. But you don't know anything. You don't know the details you think you have about me. You're wrong about. I wonder how much we, how, how easily we could say that to people today who talk about Jesus. There are people who have all kinds of opinions about Jesus and really don't know the first thing about him. They don't know him. They haven't even bothered to do the historical research necessary to figure out what we know just from history about him. Much less who he is today. So he begins by kind of challenging this. You think you know me, you don't. I have not come from myself, rather the one who sent me is true. Jesus is talking about God the Father. And Jesus is saying, I didn't just show up here of my own accord. I was sent with a specific task in mind. John's already told, he kind of laid it out for us in chapter 1. Jesus is the message of God who was who God is from the very beginning, that message now uh, came to us in flesh. That message became flesh. And he came with the uh, distinct, specific purpose of communicating to us the message of God and he's saying that the one who sent me God who God the Father who sent me to you to convey this message he is true therefore it follows that what Jesus is telling us is the true message of the true God who speaks truth and who is now speaking in the incarnation 
So much confusion. Chapter 7, I'll be honest, is a frustrating chapter to work through. It seems like the whole chapter is arguments back and forth about Jesus. Is he this? Is he that? Well, he can't be this because of that or the other or this or the other. And there's so much confusion and misinformation. And even those in chapter 7 who say they believe in Jesus are getting it all wrong. Not to mention the ones who hate him and want to kill him. It's like nobody can figure out heads, uh, head from tails, up from down. They have no idea what's going on. I think that's the point of this chapter. You know why there's so much confusion? Jesus tells them, you do not know him. There is a God who speaks true. There is a God who doesn't uh, peddle in half-truths. There is a God who does not lie, who is absolutely true in every way, every possible way. Our problem is not that the truth isn't being spoken to us. Our problem is that we do not know the one who is speaking true to us. And because of that, we are confused and in darkness. And we can't figure out one thing from another. And everything we hear sounds equally good to us. And it all is a big mess. We're constantly struggling to make sense of the world and God. And we think we know. We think we know what we need to know about God. We think we know what we need to know about Jesus. But we don't. Because we don't know the one who is speaking to us. Even though he speaks true. It's that ignorance that's killing us. I have a question from these verses. Jesus responds to the confusion of the crowd in Jerusalem by pointing out a simple truth. They don't know God. How does ignorance of God lead to the same confusion in the world today? Let's keep reading verse 29. I know him because I have come from him and he sent me. Unlike us, Jesus knows God. He didn't know about God. He knows God in the most intimate way you could possibly know God because he is the word that not only was with God eternally from the beginning, he is the word, the message that was God. How could you know God any better than by being God? And Jesus is the Son sent from the Father. And he knows who God is perfectly and has been sent from the Father to us to convey to us the true message of the true God. To speak truth in a world drowning in lies. You complain that you're confused, that you don't know what to believe. There is a lifeline extended to you. That lifeline is Jesus, who came from the one who is true, who knows everything there is to know about the one who is true, because he is the one who is true. And he has come not to be mysterious and distant, but to communicate with us 
and to tell us to speak the truth to us if we will but listen. I have a question from this verse. Jesus, however, knows God perfectly because he is God come to us in the flesh. If what he claims is true, how could this help our confusion regarding God? Let's read verses 30 through 32. Therefore they were seeking to seize him, yet no one laid a hand upon him because his hour had not yet come. But many from the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, The Christ, when he comes, won't perform more signs than this one has done, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd grumbling these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. There's something interesting in the way John has arranged these three verses, because Verse 30 and 32 basically say the same thing. In the middle, there's this statement about many in the crowd believing in Jesus. But on either side of that, there's this plot to arrest Jesus and have him killed. They're trying to seize him, arrest him. But here's what uh, John has to tell us about that. Nobody laid a finger on him because his hour had not yet come. You see, God is a participant in the things that are going on in this world. God is not an observer. He's involved. He is constantly interacting with the world he's created. He didn't just sit back and wind it up like a toy and sit back and watch it wind out. He is passionately and actively involved. So when this plot to seize Jesus and kill him, they, they want to do it now. God in his providence knows that Jesus has six more months before he's finished doing what he needs to do. And until Passover arrives, it will not be time for his death. Therefore, God forbids it and intervenes in his provident care to prevent this current plot from coming to fruition in September or October when it is that they're uh, in the Feast of Booths and want to have Jesus arrested and killed. It's not time, so it's not going to happen. I'll tell you, God continues to work that way in the world today. There are all kinds of things that people want to do, and it's not going to happen because God chooses to not allow it. God is still in control and still involved in the world today. So you have this desire to arrest him, and in contrast, stark contrast to that. Verse 31, many in the crowd believed in him. They put their faith in him. But notice what they're saying. The Christ, when he comes, won't perform more signs than this one has done, will he? They believe in Jesus but they don't believe he's the Christ. So what kind of faith is that? What kind of belief is that? And here's, here's the thing that I find fascinating. Until this year preaching through John, I don't think I had ever quite noticed it, is that in John, this idea of faith is a real struggle even those who believe in Jesus are constantly getting all kinds of really important things wrong about him. They, they believe he's from God. They, they want to trust what he's saying. They respond positively, but they're still confused. They're still stuck in the assumptions and the things they brought with them. 
And they still try to force Jesus into that structure. We can't know where the Messiah comes from. We know where Jesus is from. Therefore, he cannot be the Messiah. We believe he's from God, but uh, he doesn't fit what we think we know about him. And, and one of the biggest struggles of faith in Jesus is discovering who he is and allowing him to break out of the structures we think he's supposed to fit inside of. The, the way we think it has to work. We, we've got, and it isn't just that we, we have so much to learn from Jesus, but we also have so much to unlearn. There's so much we've got wrong, and we don't even know it's wrong. So I think John is very keen to bring us with him on this journey called faith through the gospel. And I think he's outlining for us, this is what it was like for the disciples. I think they themselves were back and forth. Is he the Messiah? Is he not? Is he, is he God? Is he, what is he? I believe in him, but I can't figure it out. constantly uh, and, and, and add to that these moments where Jesus just flat out challenges everything you think you had figured out and you're forced to either set it aside and keep on pressing in with Jesus or you balk at it and say that's too much and walk away like so many did when he talked about being the bread of life faith in Jesus is not just a journey it's an odyssey. It's, it's the most amazing path of transformation. This, this moving from death to life, moving from darkness to light, moving from unfaith to faith is nothing short of an epic tale for any of us. It's not easy. And I think John's very clear about that. You say, yeah, the crowd, a lot of them believe in Jesus, but they, they still are clueless. Oh, Jesus has to illuminate them so much further. Let me tell you, if you embark on the journey with Jesus, that's what lies ahead of you, is this whole lifetime of, of transformation of discovering things you didn't understand and letting go of things you thought you knew and you were absolutely wrong about. We are constantly doing that in our walk with Jesus. And this nascent faith, this faith in its infancy, is surrounded by hostility, by people wanting. In the narrative structure of these three verses, John has placed this fragile faith in the middle of hostility against Jesus, the desire to arrest him, and the Pharisees and chief priests sending officers to arrest Jesus. And we feel the, the fragility of faith surrounded, uh, first of all, beset with problems from within because the people trying to exercise this faith are already wrong about so many things. Add to that the fact that they're surrounded by forces hostile to Jesus. And we get the idea that faith is a miracle. That it takes God reaching in and responding to our positive approach for anything to happen, for us to be able to ever break out of the darkness we're in. 
It's a good thing that God is eager to receive us, that God steps in to strengthen and guard and protect faith because it would never happen without God. I have a question from these verses. John sandwiches an incomplete faith in Jesus between expressions of hatred and attempts to arrest and kill him. How do the hostility of some towards Jesus and our own imperfect grasp of who he is make faith a difficult journey? Let's keep reading, verses 33 and 34. So Jesus said, yet a little time I am with you. Then I go to the one who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you are unable to come. Jesus is addressing the religious leaders in Jerusalem, the experts on the things of God, on the word of God. These are people who supposedly have devoted their lives to seeking after God. God has come to them. Here's the amazing thing about Jesus. God has heard their prayers. And God has finally responded by sending not just the Christ, but by showing up himself. And when Jesus stands before them and speaks to them, God has heard their prayers and he is there in the flesh to talk to them. Finally, God is speaking plain as day to them. Do you realize the the privilege they were enjoying? Haven't you ever wished you could stand face to face with God and talk to him like you do to anybody else? They had that opportunity. Jesus, I think in these verses, is saying a word of warning. I'm with you a little bit of time, about six months. It's September, October, and March, the following Passover, he'll be crucified. I'm with you a little time, then I'm going to the one who sent me. I'm going back to the Father. I am returning to where I came from. You will seek me, but you won't find me. Where I am, you are unable to come. Now, on the simplest uh, understanding of what Jesus is talking about here, you would say, okay, well, once he's dead, wherever he's going, they're not going to be able to find him. They're not going to be able to discover him um, And it is true that there is no body of Jesus to be found because he rises from the grave and returns to the Father. But I think there's a little more to what Jesus is talking about here. You see, their whole lives are devoted to a pursuit of God. And when God shows up in response to their prayers and pleading and actually is there standing in front of them, they want to kill him. And Jesus says, I'm going to die in about six months. I'm returning to the Father. And you're going to keep seeking me, but you're not going to find me. He's not just saying, me, God, in the the incarnation, me, Jesus, the human being. He's saying, me, the eternal God, you have been pursuing your whole lives. 
The God you think you're chasing after with all of your religious intent and research and hard work, this God you believe you are pursuing and are eventually going to find, that search will remain fruitless for you. You can't join me with the Father. Because God showed up and spoke to you and you rejected him. And having rejected Jesus, there is no alternative God to turn to. So you can do your religious pursuit the rest of your life. You can become a philosopher of religion. You can study every religion in the world. You can become the greatest expert there is on the minutia of sacred texts around the world. You can do all of that. You can search until your dying breath, but if you have rejected Jesus, you will not find God. Because you have rejected the only God that there is to find. There aren't a bunch of gods. There aren't a, a, a limitless number of options out there. There is one God who came to us in the incarnation. If we reject that God... We can keep searching all we want. There is no finding him. You will seek me and you will not find me. In fact, because of your rejection of me, you are not welcome in the Father's presence. Where I am, you cannot come. You are categorically unable to come to me. To the Father. You're excluded. And the final verses. So the Jews said to one another, where is this one about to go, that, he will, that we will not be able to find him. He's not about to go into the diaspora among the Greeks to teach the Greeks, is he? What is this message he spoke? You will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you are unable to come. We see clearly that their blindness remains. They are absolutely unable to figure out what Jesus is talking about. They really think that they can get rid of Jesus and go right on with their pursuit of God and it'll all be fine. What is he talking about? Where does he think he's going to go? We can't find him. Oh, maybe he's just going to leave our land altogether and go out among the diaspora, the dispersion of, of Jews all around the world and hang out among the Greeks somewhere. Maybe he's going to teach Greeks. Well, good riddance. Get out of here. Vamos. Jesus is not talking about leaving the land of Judea. In fact, he's going to stay there until the crucifixion. He's talking about leaving their lives, about uh, stepping away from them because they reject him. So they say, what's this message? What's this logos, this word he's speaking? Uh, you're going to seek me and not find me. Where I am, you are unable to come. They seem very skeptical that their situation is as dire as Jesus is suggesting. Why would we seek after you? We don't care. We're, we're pursuing the God of Moses. We don't need you. Why would we want to be wherever you end up? And yet the God that spoke to Moses is the God 
who is standing before them right now. The God whom they are rejecting. The same holds true today. Jesus stands before us and says, I am the God who made you, the God you are seeking after. I invite you in. Know me as I know you. If we reject that invitation, we can pursue whatever philosophy or religion we want to. We are never going to find God. We are never going to join him. I have a final question. Jesus told those who wanted to kill him that they did not know God and that they would never find him or join him where he is. What does it take for us to know God and join him where he is? I title this message, You Don't Know Me. The fact of the matter is that we don't know God, but it's not his fault. God has been communicating with us throughout all of human history. He has been a participant in human history. And he even went to the extreme of becoming flesh and coming to speak to us, to convey his message to us in the most perfectly contextualized manner possible in human flesh. How could he have spoken any better, any clearer than that? But even when Jesus was here in the flesh, performing miracles, speaking with an authority nobody had heard a human being speak with before, many rejected his message. Many. They didn't argue that the miracles weren't happening. Their problem was what Jesus was saying about himself. I am God. I am Christ. I am Savior. They said, no, you're not. Our greatest barrier has always been our own desire to control the narrative of our lives. Each one of us wants God to assume his role as a secondary character in the story of our lives. We're not interested in finding out the story of God and his people, God and his creation. We want it to be the story of me and my God. That's the perspective we want. But guess what? We're not the authors. It's not our story. We are the secondary characters. If we want to participate with God in his story, we're the ones who have to come to him, not as we want him to be, not where we want him to be, but as who he is and where he says he is to be found. That means we accept Jesus as who he, he says he is, as Lord, as God, as Savior, as Christ. And we put our faith in him to lead us into life eternal. There's no other way to know God. There's no other way to join God. Please join me in prayer. God, thank you that in all the confusion of this world, you have stepped in and spoken with clarity 
and passion. Thank you for the message that came to us in human flesh. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to turn to you. There's so much to learn, so much to unlearn. Help us to just cling to you tenaciously and let you drag us from death into life. Let us latch on to you and nothing else. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.